And the Buddha often spoke about five powers or five faculties. And the five faculties and the five powers, which are identical, are ten of the thirty-seven factors of enlightenment. Now, at one stage, in the past two days, there were seven factors of enlightenment mentioned. But these seven are seven of thirty-seven. So altogether there are thirty-seven factors of enlightenment. These seven that we have talked about last two days, last two days, are often considered to be the um, concise, thematic, um, explanation of all 37 but when it becomes a little more detailed then 37 are mentioned so we have those 7 that we've talked about and then we have these 5 that we're going to hear about now and they're considered to be 10 because they are sometimes considered to be faculties that what we can do but when we can actually do it, they become powers. So there are five faculties and five powers which makes it ten. And we have already heard about four others, also four of the 37 factors of enlightenment, which are the four supreme efforts. Four supreme efforts of not allowing unwholesome thoughts and substituting with wholesome. So these are already 21 factors of enlightenment. That's all one needs to practice, the factors of enlightenment. Well, as you know from the seven which we've talked about the last two days, the four jhanas belong to that and the insight into the three characteristics impermanence, dukkha and substancelessness so although they are concisely explained very often with one word only there's a wealth of practice and a wealth of inner strength behind all that and this is sometimes misleading until one starts doing it. People who only read about these things have two options or three. The third option is the best one, that is to start practicing. But the other two are that they read it and find it tedious and boring. That's one option. And the other option is that it sounds very simple, so, well, okay, so that's understood and done with, so let's get on with something a little more difficult, like maybe Schopenhauer or um, Sartre or something really difficult. Uh, the simplicity of the Buddha's explanation is misleading. The wealth of and the profundity of the whole of the aspect of the teaching is so enormous that only a practitioner can ever get near it. So, with seven factors of enlightenment, 
which we've talked about, four supreme efforts, and now these ten, we've already got 21 out of 37. The Noble Eightfold Path is another eight of that. So there we have 29. And um, we have already um, had some reference to the others, which we will um, have more reference to also, because they are all bound up with each other. It's like a huge jigsaw puzzle where eventually all the pieces fit together and make one very beautiful picture. The, uh, the explanations of the Buddha are sometimes extremely short and uh, not detailed. Sometimes they are, but very often they're not. So that one of the things which one has to remember is that the onus of the practice lies on oneself. Nobody can do it for one, and the understanding also lies in oneself. Nobody can do anything for another. <clears throat> their guidelines, they are pointing the way, but the finger pointing to the moon is not the moon itself. Now, this is a chapter in the Sanyuta Nikaya, the Samatic Collection, collection which is put together according to uh, different um, headings which belong together. This is the, the uh, collection of the faculties. And here it is um, called Controlling Powers, the Five Controlling Powers. And the Buddha says, what are these five controlling powers? The controlling power of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and inside wisdom. Now you will see from these five names that energy was already one of the seven factors of enlightenment, and concentration was two, and mindfulness was two. So, and inside, of course, was taken for granted as the result of the investigation of phenomena. So they are the only one that is really newly added to this is faith. Now, there's um, an interesting way that is sometimes explained by the Buddha that these five can be likened to horses that are pulling a chariot. There's a lead horse and then there are two pairs. Now the lead horse can walk or run as fast as it wishes or as slow. The others have to follow. But the pairs have to be completely balanced. If the pairs are not balanced, then the chariot is going to overturn either one way to the right or one way to the left. So the lead horse is mindfulness again. Just as it was the first one of the seven sectors of enlightenment, it's the one that gives us access, mindfulness. Again and again we'll come across it. So 
if we eventually take it to heart that that's really what's meant as spiritual practice, we will uh, try to practice it ourselves. It's not just a word, it's a mental faculty. It's a mental faculty which shuts out all the extraneous ideas, wishes, hopes, desires, fantasies, and stays grounded. Now there is a discourse somewhere, I happened to glance at it today, but I lost the page again, so I'll just tell you about it, where the Buddha says that if one hasn't made a success of being in the active world, in the world of the um, ordinary world, he calls it active world, one is certainly not going to make a success of the spiritual world. So in other words, one has to be grounded. And that grounding is done through mindfulness. It's very simple, isn't it? You have to be grounded, so ground yourself through mindfulness. The only problem with it is, is to do it. The understanding is really not nothing uh, esoteric about it. And uh, mindfulness means to be right there when one is doing something. All the time, just being right there. And when one is doing something, to know what one is doing. It does make life much easier on a mundane level, on a worldly level. But it also purifies. And because it purifies, because it's impossible to be mindful and negative at the same time, when it's either one or the other, because it purifies, it becomes easier. As one practices it, it becomes easier and easier until it actually becomes a habit. And that's what's wanted, that it becomes a habit. Now, we all have certain habits. Some of are more lovable than others, no doubt. But this one can become a habit. It, it requires that we actually let go of our desire to escape through finding something that will satisfy our senses. Because mindfulness is by far the best escape. Nothing can match it. It's impossible to have dukkha if one is mindful of one is what one is doing. Who can have a problem when one is taking a step? Of course, one can think of millions of problems instead of watching one step. But one can't watch the step and think of millions of problems all at the same time. It's either or. So it's a um, um, very popular parlor game to think of all these problems or hopes or wishes or fantasies instead of being mindful. So the mindfulness of the physical action takes pride of place. The physical movements and the physical actions, the movements which we need to do and have to, um, all day long there are movements we have to do and even to keep alive we have to move. And then our actions 
which results from these movements. It takes time and space. Naturally, we can become mindful and attentive to what arises as a feeling or as a thought or as a thought content. Now, that is also beautifully misunderstood again and again, even by those who practice. If one is mindful of a feeling or a thought or a thought content, one doesn't get involved in it. Now, this is a complete misunderstanding that one stops thinking if one is watching the thought. One stops thinking. One is observing it. The observation of the thought naturally puts an end to it. One can't be a thinker and an observer at the same time. So even those who think they practice still don't know how to practice. It's so simple. Just to observe. Now, let's say somebody is painting a picture. Right? He's a painter, he's got a canvas, and he's got paints and everything, and he stands there and he paints a picture. And one comes and stands next to him and watches what he's doing. But you can't be both. You can't be the painter and the watcher. You're either one or the other. It's the same with the thinker. You can't be the thinker and the observer. Either you're thinking, 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 and of course that's very uh, irritating, or you stand there and watch all the thinking going on, and the minute you do it, it's all finished. And all one has to do is then smile at it and say, uh uh-huh, another one of those. And as one eventually becomes habitually um, geared towards being one's own observer, then one finds the dreams and the fantasies and the hopes and the uh, ideas and the resistances and rejections very quickly and looks at them and they disappear. Mindfulness is objectivity. Being the watcher Standing there and saying, ah, like watching this fellow making a painting and saying, ah, horses, that's what he's painting. Um, all right, so he's painting horses. Now, the one who's painting, he is extremely interested in making these horses lifelike or beautiful or um, uh, expressing speed or something. He's care- he cares about those horses. But the one who's watching all this, he says, oh, horses, interesting, finished, that's it, horses. The watcher is not the one who's interested in those horses and wants to have them beautiful and wants to have them um, very attractive or saleable. So nothing to do with those horses. Now here, there um, many of these more uh, short discourses of the Buddha on their faculties and um, in the first one he just enumerates them and then he says the um, from what point of view should the controlling power of mindfulness be regarded from that of the four foundations of mindfulness. 
Now, the four foundations of mindfulness, we have talked about them in detail already, but I'll just quickly mention them again, particularly for those of you who weren't here in the beginning. The first one I've already said, the body. All the actions, all the movements, just being with that. And I have already explained that also uh, a few days ago. Then feelings which arise, which are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and of course the neutral ones usually fall by the wayside because we are not that um, mindful to know them, but we can know pleasant and unpleasant quite clearly. And from that, the resultant mental or emotional state. The emotional state, if it's an unpleasant feeling, can be any of the negative states and the same with the mental state. So we can become aware of that. And if we are the observer of that, of our mental or emotional state, we'll never react to them because they fall apart the minute we have observed them. And if they don't fall apart, we can always investigate why this has arisen, what it is within that has created such a mental or emotional state, not an outer trigger, but what it is within, whether there is anything within which is impure, which is creating that. Now, if we find that impurity within, we'll have an easier time to counteract it. It will be one of the five hindrances, quite clearly. Now, that would be then the understanding of the content of the mind. One of the five hindrances has arisen. And since we've already learned what to do, not to feed them, we can then do something about it. If we don't use these things for practice, we're sitting here for nothing. I mean, we could just as well go to bed or drink tea. Because these things are only for practice. That's the only good they are. They have no other purpose at all. So the, if we watch with mindfulness what's going on within, we never need to react to any of our unpleasant states, unpleasant feelings, because we can see that it's nothing but one of the hindrances which has created that impurity and we will know what to do as an antidote for that. So this is the most important access route to the purification path which eventually leads to the elimination of all dukkha, which eventually leads to the purity of a, uh, of a person where the dukkha exists in the world and always will but it doesn't have the effect of creating unhappiness because there's nothing there that is being desired so mindfulness of any of these four is of any of these four foundations is the practice and again pride of place 
physical movement, physical action, and of course, as appropriate, if a strong feeling arises, putting attention on that, watching it. Just as we label in the meditation practice in the beginning and real and watch the thought dissolve the same way here it dissolves. Now that's the lead horse of those five. And then we have pairs. We have the pair of faith and wisdom. And here the Buddha says From what point of view should the controlling power of faith be regarded? From that of the four factors of stream entry. Now stream entry, and we did have that discourse once, we uh, have discussed it. There is a small stream enter, Chulasotapana, who becomes a stream enter by virtue of total and complete faith in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Such faith and such devotion that there is not the slightest doubt in the mind that anything else needs to be practiced. Nothing. Now that is of course more common in a Buddhist country where one is brought up with that as a background to one's life, it's highly unlikely that that would happen in the West, where Buddhism is being um, regarded either as a meditation practice, which it is only to a small extent, or whether it's regarded with skeptical doubt, because there must be something easier than that. So, uh, it's highly unlikely that a small student would ever happen in a Western person who has not been imbued with the uh, Buddhist teaching. However, there is such a thing, the Buddha mentions it, and the four factors of stream uh, entry are that complete confidence and that um, complete and wholehearted self-giving, self-surrender to the enlightenment principle which is um, symbolized by the Buddha, the uh, teaching, the Dhamma, and the Sangha as the propagators of the uh, teaching and particularly the enlightened Sangha, those who have been become enlightened because of the Buddha's teaching and have propagated it. The fourth one is keeping the five precepts intact. That's called the noble virtue. It's a f- keeping the five precepts intact, the non-killing, not taking what's not given, no sexual misconduct, no, no wrong speech, and no intoxicants. So keeping those five completely intact is the fourth of the four factors of so that is the, the traditional way of explaining faith and confidence. Now the word faith, sada, can be translated as confidence. It doesn't matter. It's the same thing. 
However, twice the word faith has a somewhat um, unpleasant connotation because immediately springs to mind for practically every Westerner brought up in the Christian <coughs> background or even in Christian atmosphere, blind faith. You've got to believe it. And the Buddha has a totally different view on that. The uh, way the Buddha explains it is that faith and wisdom have to be balanced. And the um, simile given is faith being a blind giant and wisdom a small sharp-eyed cripple. And the blind giant says to the small sharp-eyed cripple, Come and ride on my shoulders. I'm very strong, but I can't see. And you have sharp eyes, but you're very puny. Now, if you ride on my shoulders, together we'll go far. So there's no question of blind faith being sufficient. I usually say that blind faith can move mountains, but unfortunately, being blind doesn't know which mountain needs moving. So, if it isn't co-joined with, with wisdom, then blind faith does not have any real direction. And also, one of the things that is um, damaging for that is the fact that questions arise questions which are not being answered. This cannot happen in Buddhism. And any questions are not being answered. If there's a question, the only thing that isn't being answered is because one hasn't got enough insight to understand it. But every question is being answered. So they have to go together. And sometimes this is called wisdom and sometimes it's called insight. Here it is translated as insight, but the word that is being used is Tanya, which is wisdom. And Tanya, wisdom, is the third of the three divisions of the teaching. Sila, Samadhi, and Tanya. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom. And wisdom always means insight. It certainly doesn't mean knowledge. It has very little to do with knowledge. However, knowledge can help. The first step for wisdom is information. That's what you're getting. That's all you're getting. Nobody can get wisdom. You've got to produce it yourself. But you can get plenty of information. Seventeen and a half thousand discourses full of information. Now, with that information, what do you do? You've got to remember it. You've got to remember that which is pertinent. And once having remembered it, you've got to practice it. And having practiced it and understood it, having had the experience, and because of the information having understood it, the understood experience brings wisdom. Nothing else. I always like to compare that to a small child putting a hand on a hot stove and screaming with pain. Nobody tells a small child that it's a hot stove that could produce the pain. 
So we'll put the tent on it again. A small child has the experience of burning a tent, but it hasn't understood it. No understood experience. So, no benefit. No benefit whatsoever. Until it understands the experience. So we can have exalted experiences, we can have damaging experiences, we can have dreadful experiences. If we don't understand what it's all about, it's all in vain. And we're going to have the experience over and over and over. And we're going to be crying and lamenting and grieving and maybe even being terribly sorry for ourselves or becoming depressed if we haven't understood the experience. Nothing will happen. It's going to happen over and over. So the understood experience, the experience is that which arises within, but the understanding comes from the information if we put two and two together. Now that takes an intelligent mind, making a connection. Making a connection between that what one actually experiences within and that what the Buddha says. Like with the hindrances, have I got them? When have I got them? What are they doing for me? What sensual desire doing for me? And all the rest of that. So we have wisdom as the, as the Buddha says, as the um, most important of any of these five faculties. And here he explains that. The noble disciple's insight is thus. He has insight for becoming aware of the rise and fall of all things, rising and ceasing of all things. Insight that is penetrating, which goes on to the complete destruction of all dukkha. He understands as it really is. Such is Dukkha, such is the arising of Dukkha, and this is the practice for the cessation of Dukkha. Now, the arising of Dukkha is all desire. There is nothing else. And the practice for the cessation of Dukkha, the Noble Eightfold Path. We have already gone through most of that Noble Eightfold Path. And the, um, the insight factor of the five uh, controlling powers of the five um, five faculties is considered, is told by the Buddha to be the most important one I'm just trying to find that spot where it says that. I don't see it right now. Anyway, the whole of the teaching has only one direction. All the 
things that we learn and do are means to an end. The meditation is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. Now the only thing that is being practiced, which is the goal, is insight, wisdom. But without purification, without concentration, it's not possible to gain that. So the other factors are practiced as a means. Now with faith, the two that have to go together, faith together with with wisdom. Faith is a heart quality and wisdom is a mind quality. And if those two don't go together, the path will never arise for one. Heart and mind are like our two legs that we walk on. If we hop along on one, it's very unlikely we're going to get very far. In fact, it's so tiring and so tedious that we're probably going to turn around and go into the other direction. If heart and mind both are not engaged, we're only half-heartedly doing whatever it is that we have come to do. The mind is the one that gains wisdom inside, the understanding. That is the one that really sees clearly the way things are. But the heart is the one that experiences. The feeling is what our experience is. There is no experience without feeling. The rest is thinking. And thinking is fine. It's just when we want to be concentrated, thinking isn't fine. But otherwise, our understanding has to be a thought process. It's not a discursive thought process. That's another thing that people seem to have a hard time understanding. That a discursive thought process is uh, detrimental. But an intuitive thought process is what we need in order to understand what goes on. But the experiencing is happening as a feeling. And if we don't have to start out with the devotion to this practice, the love and confidence in the practice, it cannot possibly flourish. In fact, it's going to be so slow, it's not going to be worthwhile. It's got to have both. And only those people who have both, and Westerners usually don't lack intelligence, but they certainly lack a lot of the heart quality, because it hasn't been practiced. If we don't have both, the practice will not be successful. It's like hopping along on one foot. If one can't give one's heart to what one is doing, why should one do it? I mean, when one doesn't make any money with it, one uh, uh, doesn't get any praise for it, it's uh, quite tedious and uh, isn't exactly praised by, by people in the outside world, so why should one sit here and meditate if one's heart is not engaged in it? Nobody's going to say, oh, aren't you wonderful, you're sitting there meditating. In fact, hardly anybody's going to know about it. Eh? So, it doesn't really have anything, anything to recommend it unless one has a complete love for it. 
And if that complete love is constantly being counteracted by skeptical doubt, which it is in many people, it's going to be a real misery. The misery is, of course, only for the person that's having that dreadful situation. The skeptical doubt which constantly arises is the one that, did the Buddha really know what he was talking about? And uh, how come the Buddha and not somebody else and all the rest of it? It's um, it's a parlor game. Because it doesn't matter who one follows, as long as one follows this heart and mind. But it has to be something that has the profundity of the totality and not just the, uh, the plugging the leak in the boat. The boat has to be abandoned. Because one finally knows that there isn't anything that one can find security in. So, the uh, faith and wisdom, those two together, are heart and mind. And it doesn't mean believing anything. On the contrary, there's nothing to be believed in here, but everything to be practiced. And faith and confidence mean only one thing, that one actually does what it, what it says here to do. That's all and does it wholeheartedly and doesn't always have one's own ideas how it could be better or, or how one is much cleverer and really knows what to do and one has already done this and that in one's life and everybody's done this and that in one's life and who's become enlightened? Well, very few people. So, the, uh, the whole thing is not having faith and believing anything. The whole thing is having faith and doing it actually doing every step on the way and refraining from one's own ideas how it could be done easier, better how one already has passed all these steps and can do the next one the Buddha says or somewhere also that if one doesn't do it step by step a gradual training it's impossible to do he compares this gradual training to being at the beach and wading into the ocean. As one first wades into the ocean, first one's feet get wet. And then as one wades in further, up to the knees and then up to the waist and then up to the shoulders, and eventually one has gained confidence that this ocean is really that what one has been looking for and one goes all the way over one's head. Gradual training, step by step. It's impossible to jump from the beach to, to uh, some place where one is going to be over one's head. We haven't got these kind of uh, faculties to do that. So this gradual training means we take every step that's being recommended and instructed. The heart quality, which is embedded in faith, is that one recognizes this one's intelligent mind that here is something, here's a teaching, here's a guideline, here's an instruction, which far surpasses anything that one can find anywhere else. And only then will one have that complete and utter love for it. Usually, people, 
when they get married, they think they've found somebody that surpasses everybody else. That's why they get married. Well, this is far more than getting married. This is one's complete and utter self-surrender. So it's got to be seen that this surpasses everything that one has found anywhere else. And if one has looked in many places, one will be more likely to say, to feel that and know that. If one hasn't looked very far, one doesn't have much of a comparison. But an intelligent mind knows when it hears the truth. It knows exactly what's true. It's intelligent enough to recognize that here's something that is far surpassing any of the worldly um, methods which are plentiful and which always promise some benefit and result and do have it to a limited degree but never to the complete degree that the heart is yearning for. And as the mind understands this, then the heart can give oneself to it. If we don't understand the teaching, we are also in a bad way because we can't use our mind then. But this is highly unlikely in the Buddhist teaching, that we don't understand it. It's so clear and so simply expressed that it would really be a person that doesn't have all their faculties together that can't understand it. (laughs) But to love it is far more difficult because we have in the West been taught to use our mind from preschool onwards and to investigate and analyze and try to understand and put two two together. But nobody's taught us to love. There aren't any preschools, kindergartens, primary schools, secondary schools, uh, technical colleges, universities that teach any of that. It's just not a subject. It's a totally forgotten entity. Nobody seems to know about it. Everybody sings songs about it, writes poems about it, makes movies about it, writes pretty horrible novels about it, but nobody seems to know what it is. Nobody wants to uh, actually discuss about it. There's always the same platitudes being said, and nobody teaches it. We don't have a clue. So we find it very difficult, understandably, to extend our heart to this where our mind may already have agreed. It's only when both come together. And the other thing which is also completely misunderstood and very often detrimental to the person who misunderstands is that people find it possible to love a person who might be propounding some of this instead of loving the practice and the Dhamma. That's where the love should go. But not, it's totally impersonal. It's got nothing to do with anybody. When we can love the Buddha, that's no longer a person, that's an enlightenment principle. But specific persons 
there this is that guru principle that the Buddha shunned. He said that has nothing to do with it. It's a, it's a, everything has to be done by oneself and he taught me, said of, about himself that I'm only the shore of the way. That's all. I can't do anything for anyone, he said. I'm only showing the way. And this is where the mistake is being made also that the love has to be extended towards the practice and the teaching. That one then, when one has done that, the heart opens and one can take in very much so others because they are also expressing that principle. That's the second step then. Faith is synonymous with love. We can only have faith in that which we love. And many of the religions operate on that principle. Faith and love. But not the inside wisdom. And the Buddha in his surrounding and his environment was an innovator. Because faith and love, the jhanas, were all in existence. But inside wisdom wasn't. The one step afterwards. So he was an innovator and reformer in uh, his environment. And this is actually what this then um, uh, expresses, those two faculties. And then we have two more that have to be balanced, and that's energy and concentration. Now here, the Buddha says, from what point of view should the controlling power of energy be regarded from that of the four supreme efforts? Quite um, extensively, and I've just mentioned that there are also four of the 37 factors of enlightenment, and with that it may dawn how important they are. If we don't practice these things, we don't have a spiritual path. Not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. Not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen. To make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. To make a wholesome thought continue which has already arisen. Take pride of place in practice. Day in and day out from morning to night. Mindfulness of the content of one's mental formation. Fourth foundation of mindfulness. Mindfulness is all embracing. The four supreme efforts are the vehicle for a purified mind and a peaceful and harmonious life. There is no other. And that has not anything to do even with Buddhism. But it's a Buddha who has expressed it in this form so succinct, so brief and so clear. Don't let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. 
So let it continue if it's there. Make a wholesome one arise that has not yet come and let it continue. Life changes markedly. In fact, it changes so drastically that people who come together who have not practiced this and come together with people who have don't know what happens to them. All of a sudden they feel happy. They don't even know why. Because if all of a sudden came together with somebody who does this, who doesn't have any unwholesome thoughts. It's not very common and it is the one way of getting out of one's misery. Now that's the uh, energy factor used in that way and there we can see that energy and effort are being used as synonymous, being the same thing. Energy and effort. That's very interesting because sometimes people think that they're going to get energy from food, from drink, from having a rest, uh, from particularly um, they're going to get energy from doing nothing, which is absolutely wrong. Nobody gets energy from doing nothing. One gets it from effort. That's how one gets energy. It's very, very plain here and very interesting. The more effort one makes, the more energy one has. Quite clear, isn't it? And with that, the pride of place takes uh, these four, the supreme effort takes pride of place. But there are many other efforts, of course, that one can make, and the energy will always be uh, commensurate with one's efforts that one is making. And that has to be balanced with concentration. Now, concentration... From what point of view should the controlling power of concentration be regarded? From that of the four uh, um, fine... From the four rupajanas, the fine material meditative absorptions the four options. That concentration. Now, the Buddha is quite clear on this. He doesn't say concentration could be this or could be that. There are uh, a lot of um, thoughts going around uh, amongst meditators and those who um, propagate meditation that concentration could be Momentary, Kanika Samadhi, Buddha never even mentioned the word. Um, it could be neighborhood concentration, Upachara Samadhi, or it could be, if one is lucky, even real concentration like the Janus. Well, the Buddha never mentioned a momentary concentration, because momentary concentration is what we have even in order not to get killed on the, on the highway. We all have momentary concentration. We have momentary concentration when we dial the telephone. Otherwise, we never get the right number. We have momentary concentration when we 
uh, peeled potatoes. Otherwise, we're going to cut our fingers off. We have certainly momentary concentration when we read an interesting book. The momentary is one that flickers on and off. It's a flickering concentration. Uh, it's certainly not enough for meditation. But um, neighborhood concentration is a fairly interesting thing that some of you might have um, experienced. Neighborhood concentration, Upachara Samadhi, and the Buddha doesn't mention that either, it's all in the commentary. He says either it's concentration or it's nothing. But uh, it is, neighborhood concentration is when the attention is on the meditation subject, on the breath or whatever it may be, and the thoughts seem to be going in the back of the head like clouds. They don't form into anything, one can't even sort of say what they are, and one has the feeling as if one is concentrated on the subject, but nothing happens. It's a little more peaceful than thinking all the time, of course, but it doesn't have any real results. Because in the back of the mind, so to say, and it gives this feeling as if it's going on in the back, of course, that's only a, a feeling, I mean, it's just going on. Uh, there are these thought processes going by like clouds. That's a new word concentration. If that happens, one has to make another little push to the mind to have a um, little more determination to give oneself completely to the meditation subject. But the Buddha never mentions these things. These are commentarial uh, discussions, and the commentaries are sometimes quite funny, actually. So, um, in this case, they're not, but they're just uh, analytical in this case. And uh, the Buddhist idea about concentration is just one thing, and that's the meditative absorption. And that also shows one other thing, that there's nothing difficult about the absorption. Nothing. It's one's own mind processes which are putting the, hin- the obstacles in the way. Particularly because we're living in a technological um, time where such matters as uh, other levels of consciousness are considered to be the prerogative of some spiritual masters. If we were to live at a time when spiritual life take part of place, different levels of consciousness would be as common as computer programs are today. Today we think that computer programs, well, of course anybody knows that, you know, you press a few buttons and the thing comes out. I mean, anybody can do that, you know. So that's common now. But the different levels of consciousness is something that we think is somewhere off in, uh, in space. That's nothing, not at all. Different levels of consciousness are the prerogative of any human mind. And have always been that way. And they do follow a certain pattern in everybody because we all have the same mind. There's nothing strange or particularly gifted about it. The only thing that needs to be done is let go of all these um preconceived ideas, how difficult it is and how how only uh, geniuses can do it and how it's, uh, one has to understand everything about it and 
uh, how one probably can't do it because this or because that. All of that has to be left, let go. And the mind just has to give itself. Give itself and have a bit of devotion, faith, love, and all that. Then brings the mind to different states where it doesn't have to attend to this sort of thing that we usually attend to, marketplace mentality. So the Buddhist explanations about the um, absorptions are very short and taken for granted. Here he says, from what point of view should we look at concentration? From the point of view of the four fine material absorptions. Finish. That's all. That's the whole explanation. That's all there is to it. So, fine material absorptions are four. Now, very often he only mentions four instead of eight. And the reason for that is that he mentions that somewhere, that the other four are extensions of the last, of the fourth one. And that they do have to be practiced, the other four. That we had a sutta where that was explained quite clearly. That all eight have to be practiced. But that he sometimes only mentions the first four because the next four are extensions of that, of the fourth one. Um, concentration. Yes. Now here, um, I didn't read this out, what he said about wisdom, wisdom insight. From what point of view should the controlling power of wisdom insight be regarded? It should be regarded from the point of view of the Four Noble Truths. And then we have five controlling powers. Now, what do we control? What does the controlling mean? It controls the mind. The mind is controlled to the point where it can do what it sets out to do. It doesn't get sidetracked, it doesn't start dreaming, fantasizing, hoping, or completely uh, being discursive or anything like that. It just does what it sets out to do. And it needs these five powers sometimes called the faculties, the five faculties, in order to accomplish that. Now, faculties means that we have them. They're all within us. We have those five. The cultivation means we have the power. The more we cultivate it, the more powerful it becomes. It's quite clear. I just read something that the Buddha said here about the energy. A noble disciple dwells resolute in energy, ever striving to abandon all bad qualities, cause the arising of good qualities, strenuously exerting, not throwing off the burden in good qualities. And the good qualities is the same as the four supreme methods, huh? the good and the bad qualities. Now here's another thing that is um wrongly translated. The um concentration of it's wrongly translated, it gives the wrong impression the word. 
I'm trying to think of the right word. Rupa. He ha- he starts Rupa, strides, sets going energy, lays hold of mindfulness and exerts effort to prevent the arising of bad qualities, not yet arisen. And then the same as for the same of those that to abandon those that have arisen. For the persistence of the good qualities that have arisen, for their non-confusion, for their growth, for their increase and development, for their perfecting. That's the controlling power of energy. Now here, instead of being just the thought processes, which have those four aspects, here are mentioned the qualities within oneself. So, um, have willpower to strive to get going energy to lay hold of one's thoughts and, and, and in this mindfulness exert effort to prevent any of the bad qualities from arising but that takes uh, work to prevent something that wants to arise then to abandon that which has already arisen and then to make those good qualities persist that have arisen and make them grow. So it's a bit of a different ex- way of expressing the same for supreme effort. And then on mindfulness, uh, again, of course, the four foundations but on concentration, secluded from sensual desire, secluded from evil conditions, first, second, third, and fourth jhana, and with insight, the the m- most often mentioned aspect of the three. Is Dukkha. Because the no, four, four Noble Truths, which were the explanation of the Buddha's enlightenment, are about Dukkha. And that's why sometimes people say that have not had much contact with the Buddha's teaching that it is the pessimistic negative teaching because it talks about Dukkha, about suffering and non satisfactoriness But it's just the opposite. It shows again and again, not only that there's a way out of it, but it shows again and again that it is um, a, a factor, a quality of existence. And because it is that, it's totally erroneous to try and push it away or get out of it or dislike it or reject it or resist it or try to pretend it isn't there or to run after pleasant sensations so that one doesn't feel it. All that is nonsense. It's always there. And because it's always there, we can just accept it and say, all right, so it is. It's just like this body. It's always there. Except when we're in the jhanas. 
but the same as with Sukkah, that's not there when we're in the jungle. This body is always there. And it has little aches and little pains and it has to go to the dentist and it has to eat and it has to sleep and it has to go to the toilet and then it can't go to the toilet and then it has to go another time and then it's sleeping and then it has to wake up. And, I mean, it's always there. It's got all sorts of problems. So we live with it. Everybody's got a body. So we know everybody's got those problems and we've got in our medicine cabinets, we've got Panadol and we've got aspirin and we've got all those things so that in case something really awful happens, we can take an odd water bottle and all the rest of it. <laughs> so we accept this. We've got this body. It's the same with all other dukkha. It just is. If we could only get that through our head one day that this is the way it is and then start working from there and not try to run away from it, to push it away, to do something wonderful so that it isn't happening anymore, it's not possible. Such a thing is not possible. And therefore, the enlightenment explanation of the Buddha was the first noble truth, that there is Dukkha in existence, the second noble truth, it has only one cause, and that's craving. The craving to get rid of that what we don't like, and to keep having constantly that what we like. Nobody has yet in the whole history of humanity ever accomplished that. And everybody tries. It's the greatest absurdity there is in humanity. Nobody's ever managed it, and everybody is still trying. Somebody must finally find out that that's really not on. It doesn't work. And then the third noble truth is that there is a cessation of dukkha, which is called Nibbana. And the fourth noble truth, the noble eightfold path, sila, samadhi, tanya, morality, concentration and wisdom, divided into eight steps, which bring one there. The practice of it. So, this is the most often explained way of the inside path. And these five controlling parts, which control the mind, contain actually within them again the whole of the teaching it's all in there so that might be enough on that subject there's plenty more on it so if you have any questions you can ask them now All quite clear or quite muddled, either way. Hmm? Uh, it is uh, caused by delusion. Dukkha is not only suffering, it is suffering, sure, but it is caused by delusion the delusion of the uh, ego entity existence, the personal existence, that's the delusion that we're suffering from. And so that dukkha is caused because out of that delusion arises greed, desire to have, and hate, desire to get rid of. And so 
Dukkha has that within all the time. But the translation for Dukkha is pain, grief and lamentation, birth, decay, old age and death, and if you want one word, unsatisfactoriness. That's probably the best word in English that we can find. It just isn't satisfactory. Whatever it is, it isn't satisfactory. And one has to investigate that, whether we can find something which is totally, permanently, everlastingly satisfactory. You know, like we live happily ever after. Anybody still believe that? <laughs> Permanently forever after. So if one, one has to investigate that and see whether one can find anything that has this completeness within. Now the heart yearns for something like that and not having been schooled in finding something that transcends the world, one is constantly looking for something that satisfies within the world. And because that's always disappointing, life is one series of disappointments. And then most people think, well, now I've learned my lesson from this one, I won't do that one again, I'll try a different one. And this goes on and on and on, a different one and a different one, and a different partner and a different job and a different diet and a different this and a different that and a different guru and uh, it doesn't work there is the cessation of all dukkha but it is transcending the world that doesn't mean getting out with the body it means transcending with the mind and that has to be done by each person for him or herself well, that's a brief explanation of Dukkha. You can have a longer one at another time. Dukkha is a favorite topic anyway. <laughs> is, is that what you wanted to know or is there something else? Yeah? Okay. No, the altered states of consciousness produce the insight which then make it possible to let go of desire because there's nothing left to desire. So the altered states of consciousness are the means to the meditation. No? And that means brings an insight which is so profound and so self-shattering not world-shattering, the world doesn't care one bit at the moment, it's self-shattering that the desires don't arise because there's nothing there that needs to be desired. It's all done. So the, um, there's a practice on the way to that which is difficult, tedious and um, very, needs a lot of effort which is, while there are still desires, to already see that their gratification will not bring about the result one 
hopes to have and therefore drop them even without having attained the insight, the complete insight. It's an insight into just the um, lack of fulfillment that comes from desire. So one can, that's a practice on the way. That answer the question? Well, I presume so. It's a little out of context. The mind coming together and falling apart. It doesn't... You said it before, for example, like to, um, when you're having a lot of thought, um, a way to work with that is to notice the mind coming together and falling apart. Right, right. Rising and ceasing. to notice the, the impermanence of it all, right? Yeah. How it uh, doesn't have any intrinsic value because it's just like a passing show. It comes and it goes. There's no value in it. It's all it's actually like a dream, isn't it? There's nothing happening in that dream. <laughs> Tyrant. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Of course it is. It's movement. All movement is tiring. It's irritating and it's tiring. Because movement has friction, it has irritation, and because movement is tiring, of course. That's why people are tired at night. They mightn't have done a thing all day. But they're tired at night. Why? Because the mind's been working overtime. You see, the third, I mean, what, the mind works overtime and doesn't even get paid for it. It's a nonsense, isn't it? If one works overtime, we should at least have some profit from it. But the mind that works overtime has no profit, only loss. It's quite absurd. So, what are you going to do about it? Tell the mind to stop or something, huh? It's, um, that doesn't work, you know, to tell the mind to stop. Recognizing the fact that thoughts are external and life is internal. Thoughts are not our life. Thoughts are only our ideas about life, which are never correct, can't be, huh? because they're not the experience, they're only the idea. So, thoughts are external, life is internal. Let me get in touch with life, which is internal to me. So I'm going inside of myself. And every time the thought arises, I don't want to be external, I want to be internal. To go back inside of yourself. It's not a pushing away, it's not a suppressing. It's changing the direction. Instead of going that way, going this way. Is that clear? Okay. All minds want to think. 
eventually we give up. If, if we've been told often enough to stop, I mean in this manner that I've just explained, just telling them to stop, they don't stop, but like this, and eventually give up. Forgiving oneself inside. Anything else? <laughs> but I tell you, your mind doesn't believe it that it's stupid. There's <laughs> not enough emphasis behind this, this statement. <laughs> it doesn't believe it. Um, well, the thing is, okay, you can tell yourself, I'm foolish to make myself unhappy with this. That is my possibility. But the most, um, the most effective way that um, I've ever found is to recognize the fact that the thinking process is always concerned with the external world. It's got nothing to do with what's really happening in here. It's external, it's all over there, it's all outside. And it's all concerned with things which at this point in time one knows nothing about. Because we haven't even been out there. We don't have any clue whether it's got any... It may be a past memory. Well, they are also, of course, are usually very um, um, discolored because our memories are very poor. So, it's all to, get, all to do with an, a movement in the world which has no bearing on our inner life. There are triggers, of course, but we can dispense with these triggers. It's something like putting the shutters down. Just putting the shutters down on the mind and saying, forget it. Come in here. And notice what's on in here. And uh, are you now talking about meditation or outside of meditation? Meditation. 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 Yeah. Putting the shutters down. Finish. Not interesting. See, and, and, and you have already seen that it's the same old story over and over again. So it can't be interesting anymore. It must be boring. Well, it's a habit, huh? It's a habit. And one has been doing that for so long that the mind, and of course it's not only habit, it's ego support. I mean, the story may be as stupid and as boring as it wishes to be, but at least when we're thinking, we know we're here. It's the ego support system 
which the mind or the ego doesn't want to get let, what doesn't want to let go. So, it, because the mind now hasn't got anything new to say anymore, it doesn't know anything, it hasn't had any new input, because nothing happening in the bush that it can talk about. So it talks about the same stuff all over again. Doesn't matter, doesn't care, as long as the ego has got a support system. And, and as, when one recognizes that, that may also help to, to um, have the willpower. The willpower to stop. One of the pathways, pathways to power, the Idipadas, is the willpower of concentration. To have enough willpower to get to the concentration. Willpower is actually the same as energy and effort, but it has a little different connotation and it, it's stronger. And willpower is absolutely essential. Because without that, the mind just plays its old game. So it's that ego support system, it's the external world which although we know already that it isn't worth it, does support this ego illusion. I mean, because in the external world, the ego illusion is rampant. Everybody's got it. And everything that happens in the external world is built up on that. It's all concerning the ego illusion. Everything. So because of that, the ego constantly refers back to it. But it doesn't like to be eliminated. It's um, putting up a very, very effective fight against being eliminated. In fact, sometimes it sort of uh, appears to give in and uh, sort of says, uh, well, all right then, I'll go along with that. But that's the same thing. It just goes along with something. But if it goes along with the concentration long enough, Eventually, it does get a bit knocked. So, watch for those two things. Put the shutters down, let the external world be, and recognize the fact that it's the ego support system which is are being used you know, for, with the thinking process. And that's why it doesn't really matter what the mind thinks. It can be quite silly and it doesn't matter. Anything else? You're saying that thought itself, thinking itself, is an inertial thought. It doesn't have to be egotistical thoughts. Egotistical thoughts are sort of a, a little stronger system, support system, help a little more. But the thought process itself, because you see, when you want to concentrate in the meditation and come actually to an absorbed state, there's nobody there telling us that we're here. We're totally absorbed. So, before we can get to that, the ego will have to give in and allow one to get there. And the more often we do that, the more we cut the ego down. We don't uproot it by that mind you. But we do cut its powers down because we're negating its powers often enough. And eventually, it can be done. It will. Unfortunately, one doesn't get a medal for it, nor does one get a halo, nothing of the sort. 
yes, the thought, the thought process, I think, therefore I am. It's actually the other way around. I am, therefore I think. Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. Which may have, I don't know, I don't know his teaching fully well enough, but it may have meant that he actually saw something like that. He may have seen that this is the ego support system. That's possible. Because the I am is only there when there is a thinking. Mm. Yes, but it's our, our, our um, ownership of thought and feeling. That's enough. That's already enough. Who exists? Who is it that exists? See, the recognition of existence is already the ego support system. Pure being is different. So, (coughs) in meditation, we can become aware of the fact that our thinking is uh, the assertion, the ego assertion. And that, because we don't want to do it. We want to get concentrated. We want to be peaceful. We want to be harmonious within. We want to have the higher levels of consciousness, and yet the ego is against it. So we have to, again and again, calm it down, quieten it down, let it have a little bit of candy, and then let it sit aside and organize itself so we come back. Well, it's not a, you know, this is not a consideration, not considered. The mind just does these things. Images is the same as words, only in pictures. It's not, it's not the absorption. It's not the, the, uh, the real thing. I mean, images are just a substitute for words. And sometimes much prettier. And if one has a visual mind, sometimes quite difficult to get rid of because they are quite pleasing. Mm. The only time that the ego is put to rest for a little while is when the mind is completely absorbed in the different stages of meditative absorption. And even then, the ego is still playing a part in it because it is observing but that's a minor, it plays a minor role then. Usually it's a major performer. It's center stage. And in the absorption, it's at least only sort of in the background. So because of that, these are uh, the means. Absorptions are the means for cutting the ego down to the point where eventually it is possible through insight to uproot it.
It won't uproot it. So images are a substitute for words. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Look into your heart and try to find, find out whether there's devotion in there. Devotion or faith or both. all coupled with love. Find that point within. Recognize that your devotion and your faith and your love is for the highest. The highest ideal give yourself to it fully with your whole heart embrace it and make that highest ideal you Now let that same love that you have for the highest idea which is in your heart reach out to the people around you. Embrace them with that same love. Bring them into your heart. Make them part of that highest idea. Go further afield. Embrace people that you know and have seen with the same love 
Let them enter your heart. Be part of this highest ideal. Make your heart larger and larger, immeasurably large. Letting beings come in from all sides. All taking part and being part of the highest ideal being embraced by your love. 